Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. This is episode 61 of the Jesus Society Podcast, and uh, today I'm sitting in my my nice little skunk works. That's what I that's what I called it. Yes, my little my little cubby in the house here. Um, I do not have coffee today. I, I did have coffee, but uh, it's uh, it's kind of late in the morning, and I've had all the coffee that I need, so I'm uh, drinking water at this moment. But um, today uh, we're gonna we're gonna try to tackle something kind of kind of hairy today. Um, a, a little bit of a of a tough subject, um, and it, it's. The gist of it is the it's this idea that um, that God, particularly in the Old Testament, um, perpetrates is a God of violence, okay? Um, because this is a stumbling block for a lot of people. Um, and there are there are all sorts of thorny issues around this, but but here's the here's the crux of it. Most of us, you know, have been taught from a young age that God is love. Right, uh, we're told that he is a god of kindness and fairness and compassion, and we believe that, and and we love that. And then, as we grow older, we we start reading our Bible for ourselves, and we run across some Old Testament passages, mostly Old Testament passages that that seem seem at first glance to kind of fly in the face of that. And so they give us pause. So, for example, um, we read about the total annihilation of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Um, we read about God's command to, uh, to uh, Saul, to King Saul, to destroy the people of Amalek, including both man and woman, child and infant, in 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. And we read the book of Deuteronomy, where in several places God commands the people to utterly destroy the people in the lands that they would be invading. And you can look at Deuteronomy 2, verse 34, Deuteronomy 3, verse 6, Deuteronomy 20, 16, verse 18. But we see those kinds of passages, and they and that bothers us. And so we try to figure out how to make sense of that, and we tend to either do one of two things in our, uh, in our discontentment about those kind of things. We either just reject God wholesale because we, we find those kind of things repulsive, or we come to the conclusion that, there, that God was different in the Old Testament um, than he is in the New Testament. Sometimes... Some people even say there's an Old Testament God and a New Test, a different New Testament God, and I, I'll take that New Testament God, but I don't want this Old Testament God. In other words, we get the idea that the Old Testament portrays a God of anger and wrath, but the New Testament God seems to be a God of love. So what do we, what do, we do with all of that? How do, we, how do we make sense of those passages without doing what, what some people have done, um, and I've mentioned this before, but um, Andy Stanley recently, um, I guess probably a couple of years now, uh, came out and kind of suggested that we should just, as New Testament Christians, 
we should sort of unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because that's just not us anymore. And you've heard me say that that is wrong, 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 wrong headed. Everything about that is wrong. Okay. So, but what do we do with that? Um, how do we make sense of all that stuff? Well, probably not surprising if you've been a listener of this podcast for a while. I want to maintain that God is and always has been a good, kind, loving God and a God who values peace and, yes, justice. And so what I, what I want to do today and what I hope to kind of show today um, in, a, in a fairly robust way, but without getting bogged down, is that there are ways to understand some of those more difficult passages in the Old Testament in light of that conviction that I have. And I really hope that you'll stick around for that discussion. Okay, so so let's start here by looking at a few of the big issues, and um, one because one, one of the, there's things people say uh, about this. One of the things that's that's um, that's out there that people say sometimes they, they it, so it's it involves this idea of a holy war, right? Um, and of course, we understand holy wars, right? Most of us are are familiar with the Crusades, which was a holy war and a a horrible one. Right, where Christians in the name of God did some horrible things, right? It was a disaster. Um, but, but I want to talk a little bit about this because in, in a lot of the passages in, in Deuteronomy, for instance, that's the kind of thing we're looking at. For instance, and I'm going to read, I'm going to read about 10 verses here. Um, there, this is not the only place where you see this, but I'm going to, I'm going to read this passage and I'm going to read a bigger chunk than I need to because I want you to see this kind of in a bigger context. Okay, so this is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And this is what we read. This is God talking to Israel, to the people of Israel, um, about leading them out of Egypt and bringing them into this, this good land, the promised land, that we'll, we'll call it. So God says this, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you, the Hethites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Now, let me pause there for a minute. It's interesting that God says, like this is where we have to pay attention when we're reading, right? God says completely destroy them and then immediately says don't make a treaty with them. Why would you have to tell them not to make a treaty with them if you've just told them to destroy them? Like who who would still be around to make a treaty with? Okay, anyway. You must not intermarry with them. And you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. 
Instead, this is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their carved images. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord has had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. But he directly pays back and destroys those who hate him. He will not hesitate to pay back directly the one who hates him. So, when Israel comes into the land of Canaan, God commanded them to make war against the people that were already living there. Okay? Now, Part of the reason this is so difficult for us to grasp is that for the most part, we, we live today, at least those of us in the West, we, t- we live in a pretty peaceful world. And what we have to understand is that most of human history has not been as peaceful. And, and honestly, it is good that we're bothered by this. It's good that we read these passages and they make us squirm a little bit because that shows that the Christian ethic of love and peace has sunk pretty deeply into our consciences. That's a very good thing. But we do have to remember that while war is never an ideal thing, ask anybody who has ever fought in a war. War is never something to to run to or rush to. Nobody that fought in a war ever has come back saying, man, that was fun, let's do it again, right? War is never an ideal thing. But even though it's not an ideal thing, it's not always wrong. Okay, now sometimes it is, but not always. Sometimes, clearly, you just need to look at history to know this. Wars need to be fought for very good reasons. It was a good thing, for instance, that we ended slavery in the Civil War. That was something worth fighting for. It was a good thing that we defeated Nazi Germany during World War II and ended the Holocaust That was a very good thing to do. People gave their lives in both of those wars to accomplish very good purposes. And so we honor them for that sacrifice. But in both of those cases, I, I firmly believe and would argue that God used one side to bring necessary judgment on the other. And in the same way, in the Old Testament, God used Israel to bring necessary judgment against the Canaanites. And there are a couple of reasons given for that in the Bible. So the first is because the the Canaanites were profoundly evil people, okay? And without going too deep into Canaanite religion, um, the Canaanites, and, and there were a number of different people groups in the land of Canaan. We lump them all together and call them the Canaanites, but you need to know that there, there were a number of different people groups living in the land of Canaan, okay? Okay. Um, but they had about 10 different gods, and the, I'm not going to list them all, but the ones that we tend to run into most frequently in the Old Testament 
were Baal, Asherah, and Molech. Okay, and, and I'm not going to tell you who those gods were and go deep down into that. But you, what you need to understand is that the worship of those gods often involved some really nasty things, um, forced prostitution, um, even child sacrifice in the case of Molech. And because idolatry always produces hurt and ungodliness, the Canaanite people were just a people as a whole, and, and, and this doesn't mean that there weren't some decent people among them, okay, but as a whole, they, they practiced persistent, unrepentant violence, bloodshed, sexual perversion, child sacrifice, and rebellion, okay? Um, just read Genesis 19 and, and look at the kind of people that are described there living in Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? So these, these were not just decent, upright people living their lives in, in peace that God says, go in and kill them. That's not what was going on here at all, okay? Secondly, because the Canaanite people were the way they were, they were a bad influence on other people. Um, and leaving them in this land that Israel was about to inherit would corrupt Israel. Um, and God warns them of that in Exodus 34, uh, 12 and 13. And you can look that up on your own, okay? And throughout Israelite history, you can just see in those places where Israel failed to remove the Canaanites from the land, Israel themselves fell into idolatry just as God had warned them. And, and he cautions Israel, uh, for instance, in Deuteronomy 9, 4 and 5. He says, when the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. In other words, don't get all puffed up and think you're you know, all that in a bag of chips. Instead, God says, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. So it's not that you're so good, it's that they're so bad. He says, you're not going to take possession of, the, of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. In order to fulfill the promise he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what, what we, we just need to understand, sin and unrighteousness and evil can be so thoroughly embedded in a culture that that culture becomes irredeemable. If you study history at all, you will see this lots of places, okay? Now, another thing here. Um, sometimes people talk about these passage, passages and say that God is condoning ethnic cleansing. Okay, you've heard that, right? But we need to be really clear here, okay? And we need to kind of draw an, an important distinction. The Canaanites were not destroyed because of their ethnicity, okay? This was not an ethnic thing. In fact, ethnically, the Canaanites were pretty indistinguishable from the Israelites, all those people that lived in, in that part of Mesopotamia um, during that time period were, were all related, and they were pretty indistinguishable from one another, okay? The Canaanites were destroyed, again, because of their sin, because of the hardness of their heart, because of their persistent immorality and ungodliness and the pure evil of their idolatry, all right? So, so the point that I'm, that I'm trying to make here is that there were some pretty good reasons why God is dealing with the Canaanites in the way he is. But 
there's another thing that you need to know about these passages. Um, and that is that the Bible often speaks in hyperbole. Okay, now hyperbole, if you don't remember your high school English class, uh, is an obvious and intentional exaggeration. Okay, it is, um, here's a, a textbook definition. It is, quote, an extravagant statement or figure of speech not intended to be taken literally, an example of which is when someone says that they have been waiting an eternity. Okay, like we all say that. We speak in hyperbole all the time. Okay, we do that. People have done that since the history of mankind. And we see that sometimes in the Bible. Okay, and this shouldn't surprise us. We just need to be discerning enough to recognize when the Bible is using hyperbole and when it's not. Okay, and there's always some clues if we just read carefully. But, but the fact that the Bible sometimes speaks with hyperbole explains why sometimes, and, and again, we, we just need to read our Bibles better, okay? Um, but it explains why some people groups are said to be utterly destroyed, and then if you read later, they show up again, okay? Let me give you a few examples of that, and you can look these passages up on your own. For example... In Deuteronomy 4, verses 26 through 30, God will even talk about destroying Israel. But then in the, in the very next verses, he discusses Israel after their destruction, I guess. Right? So clearly, he's, he doesn't mean total abject annihilation there. In Joshua 11, verse 22, we're told that all of the Anakim... All of the Anakim in Israelite territory were killed. All of them. And then you read a few chapters later in chapter 14, verse 12, and again in chapter 15, verses 13 through 19, somehow the Anakim are back. Okay? So, so they haven't been totally destroyed, right? And it's not that just, it's not that just, well, that God told them to do it and they didn't do it. It's not just that, Okay? Uh, the Amalekites were said to be completely destroyed in 1 Samuel 15, but then they reappear in 1 Samuel 27, verse 8, where we're told that they're utterly destroyed again. And then later in 1 Samuel 30, there we see them again. And they're still around apparently 250 years after that in 1 Chronicles 4, 43. So there you go. Some hyperbole, folks. We need to just understand understand it when we see it. You also need to know that the Hebrew Hebrew word for destroy, which is the Hebrew word uh, harem, can also mean devoted to God and not necessarily destroyed. And that may seem like a stretch, but but consider that often the things God told Israel to destroy when they conquered a people, were destroyed as an offering devoted to God. So those are, those are related ideas. They're not, they're not totally um, uh, divergent meanings there, all right? So the point is, don't, don't downplay what the Bible says. Don't just write them off when you, when you read the Bible say things like that. But don't misunderstand hyperbole either when you see it.
So, so we need to not be myopic in the way that we view these passages. We need to look at the whole picture because God's standard offer for, for the people in the land of Israel, um, that the, in, in the land that Israel is, is going to inherit, his standard offer is that they should repent and live. So you see that in Deuteronomy 2.26. You see that in Jonah 3, 3 through 10, right? Um, a good example of that is Rahab. You may remember Rahab. Um, Rahab lived in the Canaanite city of Jericho. But she repented and she was saved. And eventually she becomes an ancestor of Jesus himself, according to Matthew 1.5. We also need to take into account some of the other things that we see and learn about God in the Old Testament. Okay, we, like if we're going to understand God, we need to look at everything that we read about him and not just a few passages where God says, go in and kill everybody. All right. For instance, God commands Israel when they go into the land to love and treat fairly the foreigner and the, and the immigrant. Uh, Leviticus 19.34, uh, Leviticus 22.22, Deuteronomy 10 verses 18 and 19. And in fact, the typical command of God is to offer terms of peace to their neighbors, uh, Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 12, and not destroy them. Okay? God's not doing this to everybody. He's not, you know, we get this idea sometimes because we just don't read carefully enough. Um, over and over and over again, God commands Israel to help its enemies. Exodus 23, 4 and 5. And, and let's not forget, in, in, the, in this context, let's just not forget, folks, God's plan for Israel, God's intent for Israel in the rest of the world, if you'll remember God's call to Abraham in Genesis 12, was always to bless the nations, calling non-Israelites to repent and come to him. We see that in Genesis 12, 3, in the calling of Abraham, Zechariah 9, 10, Psalm 87, 4, Isaiah 2, uh, 2 through 4, all over the place, okay? Um, the Philistines will eventually be offered salvation, as, as will the Jebusites, according to Zechariah 9, 6, and 7. Eventually, the Babylonians, the Cushites, the Lebanese will be offered salvation, according to Psalm 87, verse 4. God will establish a highway to save the Assyrians, Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. Jesus himself will minister to the Canaanite woman of, of Tyre and Sidon, Matthew 15, 22. And by the power of, God, of the gospel, all nations will be blessed, which is why today we take the gospel to all nations, as Jesus commanded in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Our, our challenge, folks, when we, when we read the Bible is to embrace who God says he is and embrace Embrace the, the justice of God. God is a just God. And by justice, I mean God is always going to do what's right. He is always going to do what, what leads to his ultimate purposes of redeeming the world for his sake. Okay? God is a just God. Depicted in Scripture as a, as a warrior. A warrior who, by the way, even punishes Israel for its sins. To leave Sin and crime and abuse unpunished would violate everything that we know about justice. Do you, want, do you really want a judge who refuses to deal with evil and violence done to others? 
I don't. And you don't either. Especially when you're one of the people that it's done to. Right? And in a world often deprived of true justice, the justice of God is good news. It is always good news. And the reason God hasn't punished any of us up to this point is that in his mercy, he's giving us all the time to repent and turn to him, according to 2 Peter 3.9. So I want to close with this along that line. Theologian Miroslav Volf in his book, uh, Free of Charge, um, the subtitle of which is Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. He says this about, about his own struggle with these issues. He says, My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over three million were displaced. My own villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry at that. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful, at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of love. God is wrathful because God is love. The resounding truth of Scripture, folks, is that God is a God of love and mercy and compassion and justice and truth. And justice is not antithetical to love, but in reality, it grows out of it. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we'd appreciate it if you'd tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcast. Please uh, visit us on our Facebook page for the Jesus Society podcast and check out our website, thejesussociety.com. Um, We've got stuff up on YouTube and Odyssey as well. Um, I'm going to just quit saying we're going to get it all out there. We're going to, we are going to get it all out there, but it's I, I'm just so busy. Um, I can't do everything. Uh, if you'd like to support the show and our related ministry, we've added a Patreon page, and the link is in the show notes for there. Uh, we would welcome your support. Um, but as always, we only want you to do that if God is asking you to do it. Thanks for listening, and remember you are greatly loved.